0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Life Ready podcast, a presentation of Blind Citizens Australia. I'm Steve Richardson. Coming up in the series, I'll be speaking with blind and vision impaired people across Australia about their lived experience, as well as the impacts of blindness on their lives. The people in these podcasts haven't necessarily performed extraordinary feats to advance the cause of blind and vision impaired people. They are nonetheless extraordinary people in their own way, and each of them will have a fascinating and unique tale to tell. We start with Rhea Andriani. Ria was born in Indonesia and came to Australia when in high school with very little English. She nonetheless went on to university where she studied English literature and music. She works now as a braille transcriber specialising in braille music at Vision Australia. Growing up in Indonesia and a culture which had very little regard or consideration for people with a disability, Ria learned very quickly the tools of self-advocacy and that the only way forward in that society was to stand up and be counted. This is an attitude that she continues to bring to bear on the impact of blindness in her life. Ria, thanks for taking the time to speak with me.
1: That's alright, my pleasure.
0: So I think we'll start just generally. Tell us a bit about yourself and your background and the sorts of things that you do in your general life.
1: Okay, so I was born in Indonesia and I went to blind school there. It was a specialist school in which blindness was part of it and I moved to Australia in 2007, finished my high school in Australia, went to university. Now I work as a braille specialist four days a week. I also do some freelance singing and also writing.
0: Well, that sounds really interesting. Tell us a bit about growing up in Indonesia. That might be something that a lot of Australians might not have been used to, and particularly with reference to a blind person in a country like that, which is quite different from Australia, I'm guessing. I I don't know. I've never lived there, so you could enlighten me.
1: Yep, sure. So in Indonesia, yeah, you're right, it is quite different, as in people usually don't think about you when they, for instance, build things or make policies or whatever and even nowadays there are still cases that is known in the blind community of children who are locked away in their village so from time to time um, someone from the government will go to those villages and when they got discovered they usually get sent to either school or training centers sometimes as adult or sometimes As children so when I was in primary school most of my classmates were actually a lot older than I was so when I was in year two for instance I was the youngest kid in class a couple of my friends were already in puberty so yeah in a way they looked a lot cooler where I was standing And I had to learn very quickly that, you know, playing the, oh, I'm blind, I can't do anything card won't get me very far because it just won't cut any ice with them. And if you want to be part of a cool kids group, then you have to be pretty adventurous and, you know, try to push your boundaries.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it would have been a good way to find out very quickly what your strengths are too. I mean, having to sort of function, hit the ground running, no excuses, you just got to get on with it. Uh, in In a Western society, we're very used to having a lot of our rights advocated for and a lot of allowances given. But, you know, I guess it's completely different to that in other parts of the world.
1: Yeah, I think it's one positive that came out of the huge amount of negative stuff that does happen. For instance, like if you want to open a bank account, they will try to thwart you because, well, you're a blind person. Why would you need a bank account? Anyway, you can't sign the same way as you just did five minutes ago. No, that's, so we that's won't right. give it to you. different, yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, I must admit I have encountered that here as well from time to time, but for me, that's a once in a while frustration and something that I can report and get past, but maybe in Indonesia, that's not so easily done because you've got to try and break the system or change yeah, the system first. it's
1: a lot first.
0: more systemic, yeah. So you moved to Australia at what stage?
1: I was in year 10 when I went to Australia, so by then I have had some mainstream schooling and then I went back to blind school and I was integrated to mainstream high school in Australia.
0: When you came here, did you have any English? Your English is obviously very good now, but did you get that before you came or did you have to concentrate on that afterwards?
1: Um, No, so I had very little English when I first came over. I was thrown in the deep end as they... Stay here It's a good expression yeah Yeah but I did I did um, study English literature at uni so I guess that's why I had good vocabs.
0: So tell me now about the music. Was that always something that you enjoyed you know growing up and then followed up later on or was it more recent?
1: Partly, it's the way that I've been raised. Where I come from, there are two legitimate occupations you can have as a blind person. One is being a masseuse, or the other one is being a musician. And for some reason, because of the stigma around it, you try your hardest not to be a masseuse. Obviously, that's a bit debunked by now. Yeah, so I've always been encouraged to to learn music. There were lots of people doing music at my school and the blind community were also very involved in music. When I got to Australia, I had the privilege of going to Braille Music Camp and learn from a very gifted music teacher who encouraged me to do it at a tertiary level. And, yeah, I found that it has taken me far across to the UK. So, yeah, that's probably the one passion that has got me somewhere.
0: I think this is the thing about Braille Music Camp. I never actually went, not because I didn't want to, but because I have another disability that meant that I was in a wheelchair and couldn't navigate around a fairly inaccessible venue. But all of my friends went and talked about Braille Music Camp and came back and said basically how much fun they had. And I always really know how much they got out of it, and it's a big community of blind musicians across Australia, and a lot of people would have got something out of out of that camp.
1: Yes, I think it's what part of the things that has kept me going. However, it's not the only reason why I pursued music. So, with
0: your music now, what style do you use? Do you have is there some traditional Indonesian cultural music, and amongst that?
1: Um I have to say I have betrayed my country quite terribly. When I was at uni I gravitated towards um what's called historically informed performance. It's the study of how music was done back in the 16th and 17th century and for some reason I got deeply involved with the Elizabethan and Jacobean music. Mm. And I think being in a church choir contributed a lot towards my growing understanding of that particular kind of music. I was choral scholar at St. James Church here in Sydney for a year, and now I just became a choral scholar again at Christchurch St. Lawrence, and obviously we have to do a fair amount of that kind of music very quickly.
0: So what's Jacobean music...
1: It's music that was written around the time of King James who published the Bible in English. So Early 17th century. Early 17th century, yeah. that's exactly right. And um, at the moment I am trying to edit a part book in Braille. It's a book of madrigals by this particular composer called Orlando Gibbons.
0: So just as an interesting question, in your study of historical music, were there many incidences of blind composers? I have heard of one or two over the years, uh, but are there any that are on record?
1: Um, Yeah, so since Brau came along, he also invented Brau music. Yes. And since then, there was a long line of successive composers who were, most of them were organists, well up to the 20th century, so lots of blind organists who went to that school in Paris did get posts around France and especially around Paris. Probably the two most prolific ones are Louis Vierne, who was organist of Notre Dame in the 1920s, and Jean Langlais, who was an organist at a church near Montmartre, and he died in the 70s.
0: Yeah, because I didn't find out until relatively recently that Louis Braille was uh, quite a competent musician until a better informed musical friend told me that he also invented Braille music and I believe he was quite talented musically.
1: He was. He was not a composer as far as I know. However, his method did allow music, especially of his time, to be written down relatively easily. So, you know, as we went towards the 20th century, it is a lot harder to codify that using the Braille system. However, if you're dealing with music from Braille's own time, you kind of see that, oh, yeah, these are why he coded it in such a way because those are the kind of features of the music of his time.
0: So do you play any instruments or are you solely a singer?
1: I am a singer. I have... Been trying to learn how to play a lute only I keep finding myself with not enough time to pick up the lute.
0: I know how that feels.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: But a lute would be a good period instrument for that era of music I suppose too wouldn't it to be able to yes. accompany yourself on. Yes. You did mention briefly before your work with Vision Australia. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so I work as a braille proofreader and transcriber. I am involved in transcribing music here, both by direct brailling using Duxbury and also using software driven methods. So there's this particular format of music called Music XML where you've already got the notes entered into the system. You just have to translate it, and a big part of my job is making sure that it's been laid out correctly.
0: You're considered a bit of a specialist, I guess, in braille music now?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mostly transcribe my own things anyway or prepare my own things for my own choir involvement.
0: All of this music can take up a considerable amount of your time. What other things do you enjoy doing with your life?
1: I like going out to the bush. Okay. And also reading and learning about animals and also the environment.
0: So when you talk about reading, you talk fiction, non-fiction?
1: Both, actually. I've been gravitating more and more towards environmental books, so books by Tim Lowe and also um, books about geology and Continental Drifts and so on and so forth. I also like fiction. I'm in the middle of rereading Harry Potter series at the moment.
0: Yeah, Harry Potter is one of these things that I must admit I've read them and I've reread them. They're kind of hard to get away from. You get caught up reading Harry Potter and I spent many years not reading it and then wondering what everyone was going on about and then all of a sudden I read it and I thought, now I know. (laughs) Yes. Do you think that you would consider going back and doing more study? Is there anything else that you think you'd like to study? You've studied English Lit and you've done musical study. Is there any other things you'd like to attempt? Maybe geology?
1: Probably I would like to pursue some further studies in music. I don't know where yet. For a long time, I wanted to go to the UK to do that only. I guess it really depends on which doors are opening for me, hopefully next year.
0: So you said you've been to the UK. How long were you there for?
1: Um, I've been there several times. So I go to a summer school in Devon called Dartington, where you have all sorts of historically informed performers coming. And I've also been to the UK on choir tours and also during my own travels.
0: The school in Devon sounds fascinating, something that I would be interested to do myself, I think, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were in the UK, did you visit any of the Harry Potter haunts?
1: Yes, I saw a model of Hogwarts in the Harry Potter shop that they got at St Pancras, which is incidentally near the Royal National Institute for the Blind. They also got a trolley that leads to Platform 9 and 3 Quarter. I think the most fascinating thing for me was going to Gloucester Cathedral and seeing the cloister, which was used to film the corridors, and they got this thing called um, the lavatorium, which is basically it's a it's a medieval sink that they used in the Chamber of Secrets to basically show the bathroom sinks in that movie.
0: That's really interesting. I believe they filmed from various places when they did it. Like they got castle scenes from from Scotland and other. Bits and pieces they used to do to do different elements of it. And I believe in some cases they even used schools.
1: They did the whole scene from Christchurch dining room and the corridors from Gloucester Cathedral cloisters.
0: And travelling to the UK would not pose too many issues for you?
1: Not really. Like, you can speak to the native islanders in their same language and accessibility-wise it's pretty good.
0: What other ambitions do you have for the future you talk about environment and that maybe sounds like a secondary passion for you what are your hopes and dreams i suppose for the future
1: well wow, that's a really deep question and i don't know if i have an answer to that i think i'd like to do more travels in the future and also to get more involved in terms of writing i also have this recurring ambition to go to france and do some manuscript studies of the Braille manuscripts that has been written by blind composers because, well, I mean, for obvious reasons, I couldn't really get into, for instance, libraries in Oxford to study 17th century music manuscripts. So I thought, you know, the next best thing might be going to Paris and see if the library got any brow scores that I could have a look at and possibly decode
0: Ria, it's been fascinating talking to you. I really enjoyed our conversation and especially given that you're a musician, fellow musician, and that certainly has kept me interested and I am a solid history buff as well. So put the two together and um, (laughs) it's been very fascinating. (laughs) And a Harry Potter fan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, likewise, Steve. Thanks for your time.
0: And thank you for being part of the Life Ready podcast series. Thank you. I've been speaking with Ria Andriani. Be sure to join me for the next installment of the Life Ready podcast. Until then, this is Steve Richardson. Take care.